Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We'll read a few verses tonight before we get started. Acts chapter 15. To get an idea, first of all, what's going on, we'll start with verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. Well, the scripture says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Let me stop right there for just a moment. That's why you've got to be careful who teaches the brethren. Now, these people right here were people that were out of the church at Jerusalem. This should have been a good church. These people should have known better. But they influenced Peter. We know that from, Acts, or from Galatians chapter 2 when he stopped eating with the Gentile believers and would only eat with the Jewish believers when some of these people came up to Antioch and uh, out of the church at Jerusalem. Peter did wrong so that Paul had to withstand him to the face. You've got to be careful. Even Barnabas was led astray by these people. You've got to be careful who teaches the brethren. Just because they come out of a good church doesn't mean they're good Christians. That's good, man. That's extra. I didn't even have that in my notes. That was free. I gave you so, many, so much good free stuff. Take note. My birthday is Wednesday, by the way. Number two. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Another point here. Some things are worth arguing about. If the truth, I mean the solid fundamental truths, aren't worth arguing about, then they don't mean much to you. I take a hard stand on a lot of things because I've read the book. I know what it says. I decided a long time ago just to stand by the book. And one of my jobs as a pastor is to protect the church from heresy. And there's heresy among independent Baptists. And they're not all just, you know, from the Catholics. Sometimes independent Baptists will come out of a good church teaching heresy. You've got to be careful about that. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. Well, now they get to Jerusalem, and the church meets. Testimony is given. And now the church is set to decide. They make a decision. Notice it says in verse 23, And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren, which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. You might underline necessary things. Not necessarily are they concerning getting saved or being saved. 
But there are necessary things that a Christian should or should not do that Christians need to be reminded of. Not in order to keep salvation, but because you're saved. So notice it says that ye abstain from meats offered to idols. Paul will spend three chapters on that one subject in 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 through 10. He doesn't just deal with it in chapter 8. He deals with it in chapters 8 through 10, clearly forbidding. That meat offered to, uh, that meat uh, that he mentions here that was offered to idols is offered to devils. And Christians aren't to have anything to do with devils, all right? He said, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. Understand. These were the early days of the church. The Apostle Paul is going to write on many more things than just these things when he writes the epistles. In the beginning, the number one main thing was getting out the gospel and getting people saved. After getting people saved, though, they needed to get grounded. And so there were certain things, necessary things, that they were told to keep themselves from but that will be added to by the Holy Spirit in the epistles. So now notice, go over to chapter 16, verse 1. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And they went through the cities. They delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And then this amazing statement. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, I'm not against promotions. I'm for having promotions. I'm for doing special things to get people to come to church to hear the gospel. I'm for it, all right? But it's interesting here. They didn't have a special promotion for the churches to grow. They gave them a bunch of decrees to keep. And when the people did, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Now, this is phenomenal. They were given decrees to keep, and the church grew. They were given decrees to keep, and the people were established in the faith. If I was to title this, it would be growing by decree. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I pray, dear God, that the Spirit of God would fill me and use me tonight, deal with our hearts. God, may we grow. May we be established in the faith as we ought, that we not be blown about by every wind of doctrine, but stand firm on your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we look back at the early church. 
And we see that they had doctrinal problems even in the early church. I mean, even within just a couple of years after Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, we find that heresies began to manifest themselves even within the congregation of the church at Jerusalem. Now, you understand in that early church, all of their proof texts came from the Old Testament in those first few years. Everything. And when they did, the people still grew. By the way, there are problems in the church today, and we have a complete Bible. It's amazing the problems just involved over the matter of salvation. I mean, there are people wanting to take good, clear Bible words and call you a heretic if you just simply use the words. Repent's a Bible word. I didn't make it up. Believe is a Bible word. And I find sometimes Peter, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, speaking to a bunch of Jews who had rejected Jesus, he tells them to repent. In Acts chapter 10, speaking to Cornelius' household, a man who was seeking God, he doesn't tell him to repent, he tells him to believe. And the result for both of them is the same, the remission of sins. How about that? Salvation doesn't have to be hard. Written very simple. Matter of fact, Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians about the simplicity that is in Christ. But we want to make everything fit into our box in terms that God just just simply repeat what God said and you'll be fine. Just do it. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he did when he wrote this very special book. When it comes to standards, some people preach if you don't do certain things or you do certain things, you're lost. That it's because you're not saved. Some preach against standards because they say, no, salvation is all of grace. And by the way, it is all of grace, if you understand what that means. The early church first had to fulfill its first command. Its first command, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Actually, the first command was, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. When they were endued with power, then they went out, they did the second part of that, and that was preach the gospel. As the church grew, it had to continue the first command while teaching them to observe all things. Remember, of course, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The third part of that is teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So the epistles were written so that we would not only believe right, but also so that we would live right. I think how people misuse the term grace today to teach things that aren't grace at all. And they've missed the whole point of grace and we've got a complete Bible. This should never be. Definition of grace is very, very simple. We ought to get it. So the early church meets to discuss it. Peter is there. Paul is there. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is there because he's obviously the pastor of the church. Just kind of a side lesson on that. It is interesting to me that the apostles were all subject to Pastor James. 
How about that? Pastor James was not one of the original apostles, but he was the pastor of that local church that they were part of. So we note the letter, necessary things, or things that, and let's go back to it here in chapter 15. This matter of these necessary things. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And the first thing he mentions is that ye abstain from meats offered to idols. Now, who is that? Who did that seem good to? It seemed good to the Holy Ghost to tell them that they were to abstain from meats offered to idols. That was the whole issue, by the way, in Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not be defiled with the king's meat because the king's meat was offered to the king's gods. So they had a problem. They had problems with that they had to deal with back in the Old Testament. And Daniel was true to the cause. Well, guess what? Here in the New Testament, they also were to abstain from meats offered to idols. The Holy Ghost said so. And as I said, he puts it in detail in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, where those three chapters all go together. So they meant to discuss it. They gave them decrees to be kept. Not a lot of them. Paul covers a lot more things in the epistles than are simply covered in this very short letter to the Gentile churches. And they received the decrees, they were established in the faith, and they increased. So let me give you some points to go along with this. Number one, the simplicity of salvation. It is by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, by grace, that is uh, God's undeserved favor. We do not deserve God's grace. We do not deserve any merit from him at all. What we deserve is hell because we are sinners in the sight of God. You see, first we must know about God this, that God is absolutely holy. He's not like the gods of the Marvel, the Marvel Universe you know, that are simply glorified, super-powered men that have all the failings and all the sick, sick and win, uh, sinful emotions that men have. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just in all things. So first they have to know who God is, that he's a holy God, because until they understand that, they'll never understand what it means to be a sinner in the sight of God. You know, most people will admit they're not perfect. Most people will admit that, yes, they sin. But also most people will say, think that they're not all that bad because they know people a whole lot worse. You can get a person to admit his, that he's a sinner without him even coming close to realize how bad of a sinner that he is, that he deserves hell that there is absolutely no good thing about him that is good enough to get him to heaven. That the only way he can get to heaven is by putting his faith and and trust into Jesus Christ. Bible says in Romans 8, 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I want you to turn over, keep your hand here, but turn over to the book of John chapter 16, just a moment. John chapter 16. 
Jesus is talking on the night before his crucifixion. And he's talking about sending another comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. Notice he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. And, now that word and, you can put a plus sign there. He doesn't just reprove the world of sin. He reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and plus of judgment. Do you get that? The Holy Spirit of God doesn't just convict the world that they're sinners. He convicts them of the righteousness of God. And they have come short. All have sinned and come short of what? The righteousness or the glory, I'm sorry, the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all come short. Everyone, the Holy Spirit convicts you of that. And he also convicts of judgment. Why do I need to get saved? Because of my sin, because I've come short of his righteousness, I am facing judgment from God. You know, that makes it necessary. You better get it done now. The Holy Spirit of God convicts of all three. Now, I've heard a number of people who've quoted from this passage, and they quote the first part of sin, in verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me, and they stop. Don't stop there. Jesus didn't stop there. He's talking about what the Holy Spirit convicts of. So, yes, he convicts of the sin of unbelief. He also convicts of righteousness. And he also convicts of judgment. That's his work. That is what he does. It's not enough for a person to know that they're a sinner. They must realize that they are hopelessly lost sinners. And they've come short of God's glory and they deserve the judgment of God. And there's not one good work they can do that finds merit with God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, again, I quoted just a moment ago, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Do every nice thing that you can possibly think of doing, and it'll never be accepted by God as far as doing anything for you to get salvation. It can't. For by grace are you saved through faith, uh, and not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans chapter 10. Paul writes, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to righteousness. That they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. You see, the Jews were still trying to do good works in order to get to heaven. They were trying to keep the law in order to get to heaven, and the law can't take you to heaven. It's not possible for a man to be justified by the law. We've already broken it. We're already guilty. We already deserve God's judgment. And I came to the place where, I mean, I used to think, yeah, I I knew I wasn't a perfect person. I knew I, but I figured one day I'd stand before God. He'd put all my good works on one side and all my bad works. I would admit I had bad works and all the bad works on the other side, but I thought the good would outweigh the bad. Therefore, that's how God takes you to heaven. If your good outweighs the bad. 
No, your good can never outweigh the bad. A sinner deserves hell and his only hope is the salvation offered by grace through Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them give me power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Those are marvelous truths. And Christ is the only hope. Do you realize you can believe in God the Father and die and go to hell? You have to believe in God the Son, his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection in order to go to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. James deals with that later on in James chapter 2. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Believing on the Father doesn't take you to heaven. Believing on the Holy Spirit doesn't take you to heaven. You've got to believe on the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to get to heaven. And you must know what Jesus did. When we talk about believing on the Son, that's on his finished work. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel message. And Paul would write in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. That's the simplicity of salvation. Now, admittedly, since everyone we deal with has heard all kinds of numbers of things, the reality is sometimes we think we've got to sit down for an hour and go through the gospel with everybody. Some people teach that. That's not necessary for everybody. Because for some people, the seed's already been planted. And for some people, not only has the seed been planted, but it's been watered by others talking to them as well. And then comes along the reaper. Somebody comes along and wins them to Christ. I've won people to Christ. I didn't have to go through everything. They already knew the gospel. They already knew what Christ did. They just had not stopped and decided they were going to take Christ as their Savior. And all it was for them was a matter of reaping. But then I've dealt with some people that my part that day was only in planting some seed. That's all it was. Now, for instance, we get to preaching a message and a service, let's say Sunday morning service, and let's say we have five different people come forward. And they're coming forward to be saved. Now, depending on their ages and some things like that, you want to be careful about some things. You want to be complete to a point, but understand they've already come forward because they're under conviction. The Holy Spirit of God has already dealt with them. You probably should not have to, except in some very serious questions where you may have some serious questions about them. They don't need an hour or so winning time. God's already dealt with them. They've already heard the gospel. They understand their need. How do I get saved? So since that other stuff has already been done, lead them how to be saved. Everybody's different. But you get saved the same way, by trusting Christ. I don't know how many times I heard the gospel before I made a decision to trust Christ. Don't make it harder than what it is. Salvation, remember, Paul talks about the simplicity that's in Christ. Not the hardness that's in Christ. You see, I, 
Honestly, I believe in easy believism. I don't believe in easy prayerism. There's a difference between the two. It's easy to believe on Jesus. It's not hard to believe on Jesus. It's easy. Before I'm going to lead somebody in prayer, I'm not going to tell them, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. Listen, if they're not convicted of the kind of sinners that they are, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, they're not ready to be saved. If you tell them, well, if you pray this prayer, you'll be saved. Listen, I've dealt with Catholics who've prayed all the Catholics' prayer. And now, here's a Baptist coming to them, and you say, here, let me lead you in a Baptist prayer. That's what they think. If I pray that, now I'm safe both ways. And the reality, you may lead them to pray the right words, but they're trusting that prayer to save them. That's what you've got to be careful of. You want them to know that they must put their trust in Christ. He is the only one who saves. We've got to make sure we have, don't make it harder than what it is. Then there's the simplicity of separation. There are things that were wrong in the Old Testament, and they're still wrong for people to do today. Now, why is that? Because they violate the moral law of God. Now, why is fornication still wrong? Because God's holy. That's why. Why is idolatry still wrong? Because God's holy. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit of God tells us in the book of Colossians that uh, a covetous man is an idolater. So you realize to be an idolater, you don't even have to necessarily bow down before a Buddha statue or any other thing, a set of candles or whatever. Uh, You don't have to do that. There are things that Christians are not supposed to do. Let me show you a few verses, New Testament. Remember, he was talking about necessary things, writing to these brand new Gentile believers and brand new uh, Gentile churches. Necessary things. But then as he writes the epistles, he expounds on those things that are things Christians shouldn't do. Notice in chapter 4 of Ephesians. I could have just had you guess the book, but this will work. I said chapter 4, and what I want you to do is turn to chapter 5. Notice he says in verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint. Let's stop right there for just a moment. These things should not even be named among us. Oh, you're covetous. You must not be saved. No, that's not what he says. It's easy to be covetous. Isn't that right? Have you ever not been satisfied with what you had? Want what somebody else has? That's covetousness. What do you do about that? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Doesn't mean you're not saved, but it's not to be done and we're not to live that way and be that way. But he doesn't stop there. He says neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, now get this, 
that no whoremonger nor unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. But now he says, for this ye know that no whoremonger has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Matter of fact, you find a person that's a whoremonger and you've got good reason to doubt whether or not they ever got saved. We know the people that get saved can't lose their salvation. So either they're not saved or they've gotten so backslidden on God, they're under the chasing hand of God. And we'll say more about that in just a little bit. But go back to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Similar statements by Paul. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Those things are all wrong. And what are they? They're the works of the flesh. To me, it's interesting. I never would have thought this if I hadn't read this passage. But witchcraft is not a work of the spirit. Witchcraft is a work of the flesh. How about that? Hmm. So not necessarily in witchcraft is the devil involved. Most of the time, it's just the flesh that's involved. And that's a work of it. The fact that some people still want to uh, play with the Ouija board, still want to read the horoscope, you know, still want to practice levitation, having somebody sit in a chair and four people raise them up with their fingers, it's, it's witchcraft. Still want to do the rod and pendulum to find out they're going to have a boy or a girl. What difference does that make? I mean, the school you send them to is probably going to try to change them into whatever they're not. Anyway, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The simplicity, I'm talking about the simplicity of separation. Separation doesn't have to be hard, man. I think every Christian ought to understand that as a Christian, there are things you shouldn't do. There are things that are wrong to do. Before I ever became a Christian, if I'd have seen people who claim to be Christian doing certain things, I'd have said, what a phony. What a hypocrite. I mean, as a lost person, I knew there were things Christians shouldn't do. It shouldn't be hard. Don't you want to act like a Christian? Be a, let people know you're saved? By how you live instead of thinking of you as a hypocrite? Well, I notice this. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 9. Know ye not the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You see, neither God the Father, nor God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit either, for that matter, have changed. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus, it's said of him in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Computers does not change who God is. They do not change what is right and what is wrong. 
Now, you go ahead and create your own metaverse with your own rules and play God if you want, but you still don't change what's right and wrong to God, and he's the one you're going to stand before one day. He's not going to stand before you. You're going to stand before him. So you had better have this right, the simplicity of separation. So the big question then is, what is sin? What is sin? I mean, because I've had a lot of people tell me, well, I don't think that's a sin. I don't think that's a sin. I mean, this society has no clue. I read an article the other day, and I'm just telling you what the article said. I think it might have been Daily Mail Online is where it came from. But from some, I don't know who took the survey. I don't know where they got it. But in the article, they said 40% of the Democratic Uh, Democratic Party people who took the survey, 40% thought it was that men could get pregnant. These loony people are running the country. Do you understand that? We have not gotten more civilized. We've gotten stupid. I mean, could they, could they possibly honestly believe that? But they're teaching in the public schools. As a matter of fact, they're going to want it so people who don't think that aren't allowed on the Internet, aren't allowed on YouTube, aren't allowed to have web blogs or anything else. Only their way can be allowed to tell what they think. No matter how crazy it is, no matter how ridiculous it is. And, and this comes from, if you remember a message I preached back in 2018, if you remember that far back, about one of the, uh, I'm trying to think of what the word is. Say it again. Post-truth. In 2016, the word of the year with Webster's Dictionary people was post-truth. In other words, if you think something is so enough, then it's so because you think it. If you really believe it, then it's so. Which is why they can change, try to change the sex of kids without the parents' permission. Because in their world, that's truth to them. That's all right. Well, what you end up with then is nothing but anarchy and the ones with the weapons win. Has nothing to do with right. Our children are growing up in this mess. Parents, you've got your job cut out. I mean, I can preach it here. That's fine. But you've got your job cut out for you to teach your children the truth. Anyway, let's, let me get back separation. What is sin then? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Now get this. For sin is the transgression of the law. Oh, who gave the law? God. In 1 John chapter 3, one of the last books of the New Testament to be written, he gives us the definition of sin. Sixty years after Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God says, sin is... The transgression of the law. Point? 
God's definition of sin has never changed. Still the same that it's always been. And so anything that God says is sin or transgression of the law, we ought to stay away from it. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we, do not the tr- we lie and do not the truth. Be careful about that. Now note with me in the same book, by the way, let's go over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, these things write unto you that, that ye, notice, sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth, this is in 1 John. Church has been around for 60 years now. When this is written. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So you go over to chapter 5. He says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Notice, the victory that overcomes the world is not us keeping the commandments. It's faith. Salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am to manifest that by my walk in obedience to God's word. The simplicity of separation. I'm saved now. I need to walk like I'm saved. You know, you'd expect the Philistines to train up other Philistines to be Philistines. But we got a lot of people in churches today who are training up their kids to be Philistines. To be of the world instead of of God. I mean, I understand Goliath being what he was. He hated the Jews. He wanted to kill as many as what he could, all of that. I understand him being what he was. He was a Philistine. That's the way you'd expect his parents to have trained him. That's the way you would have expected the nation to have trained him. I don't understand. As believers, we give our kids all the worldly stuff we can give them and think they ought to have access to everything on the Internet. They ought to be in all the... uh, uh, the social media sites and be able to do their TikTok stuff so they can be famous and make money so I won't have to spend money on them as I get older and I can save it for my own retirement. Separation. Here's the simplicity of it. You're saved, act like it. Just act like you're saved. Makes sense to me. Act like you're saved. Third thing, simplicity of spiritual relations. What happens when a Christian sins? Back here in 1 John chapter 2 again, you notice he said, "These my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. If a man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What happens when a Christian sins? Thank God, Jesus Christ has covered our sins in his blood. And as he says back in chapter 1, verse 7, in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm not to walk in sin, but hey, when I sin, thank God, it's covered. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That should not be an incentive for us to sin. That should be an incentive for us to walk like a Christian ought to walk. There's something else, and not only is he the propitiation, his blood is the propitiation for my sins, but I go to Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, in verse 5, you forgot the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receiveth. So if you're saved and you do wrong, God's going to chasten and scourge you. God does that. So I don't like that part of it. Well, who does? Verse 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. Yes, God will chasten you and he will scourge you. But if you sin, you do not lose your relationship. What you lose is fellowship. He says back in chapter 1 of 1 John, when he says, if we say we have fellowship with him, notice fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The new relationship for a child of God is sonship. That's why we can pray our father because he became my father when I got born again. As a matter of fact, according to Galatians chapter 4, verses, verses 6 and 7, we are now, no more a servant but a son. If a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. So he treats us as sons. Let me give you an example from my own children. If my child had ever written in a hymn book, they would have been punished. My child ran like the heathen in church they would have been punished. The auditorium isn't the playground. I'm just simply saying it wouldn't be allowed. We're going to do it. My child sassed back to a teacher. They'd be punished. We wouldn't be mad at the teacher. We'd be mad at the child. Trying to help some of the teachers out here. If my child lied, they'd be punished. If my child cut up during the service, and that had happened in the past, and they got punished. I remember one day, I was pastoring up in, um, let's see, was it Manchester? might have been Manchester. No, Pinewood Baptist Church is where we were at. And look, no, it wasn't either. It was Manchester. Kathy was sitting over on this side, down a little bit from her mother, and there was another little girl that was sitting there with her. And I got to notice as I was preaching that they were both looking down between them. Now, I'm sorry. When that's going on, you know they're paying attention to what's ever going down down here. I can't see it because the back of the pew's got it covered up, but I know they're up to no good. So I'm preaching, and I look over there, and I keep looking over there. Keep looking over there. She looked up, and she saw me looking at her, and she 
straightened up and everything's wonderful. I'm still preaching away and I look down over there again a little bit later and they're doing something down there behind that pew that I can't see. And I said, Kathy, right in the middle of the message. Oh, she knew judgment day had come. (laughs) She knew it. She was not a bit of trouble the rest of the morning. That day, somebody had invited us out to eat after church. Always appreciated. Thank the Lord. And uh, so I took Kathy back to my office when it was over. I said, well, hon, you can have it now or you can wait until after we eat. Normally, we didn't wait because the Bible says because sentence against the evil work is not executed speedily, therefore, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. The best chastening a child can get is the quickest you can give it to them after the offense. Then they put the two together. And she said, Daddy, I'd rather just have it now. She was 14 years old. I didn't have a paddle. And 14 years old, I mean, there comes a time when you stop using your hand. But I did have a little wooden sign on my desk that said, of all things, the buck stops here. (laughs) So, So I said, bend over the desk, and the buck stopped there. Actually, that was the very last whipping she ever got. And we didn't ease up. Now, she's probably going to listen to this and has to hear it. But I did it for your edification. (laughs) I do not spank other children, other people's children for those things. My, My daughters were the ones who got chastened. Now, why? Because they're mine. But get this, whether it be Carrie doing wrong, and I got a few stories I could tell you about her too, but her husband wants to hear them too much, so I'm not going to do it. So, but you understand that when they did wrong, they did not lose their daughtership. They were still my daughters. And when you sin, you don't lose your sonship. You're saved now. You're still a child of God even when you do wrong. What was broken? Fellowship. What restores it? Chastening. You see, that's the simplicity there of spiritual relations. It's our heavenly father to his child. You're always still just his, his child. But when fellowship gets broken, that ought to grieve you. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So there's the simplicity of salvation, the simplicity of separation, the simplicity of spiritual relations, and the simplicity of sanctification. Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean by sanctification? Well, sanctification is really learning to act like what you are. I mean, first 22 years of my life, man, I was a child of the devil. I lived in the world. It was all about the world. I got saved. This is a brand new life for me. I need to learn some things. Now, the definition of sanctification is literally being separated from something unto something. 
I got saved and immediately I was separated from the world in position. But I needed to learn how to walk in a separated way to please him and also to show people that I now belong to him. You know, part of growing as my daughters for them was learning right and wrong from our, from our perspective. Why? Because we were the authority. And they needed to learn right and wrong from our perspective. Well, guess what? As a Christian, when I got saved, I needed to start learning right and wrong from my father's perspective. That's sanctification. Now, there is past sanctification. That took place when you got saved. You were immediately separated from the world unto God. And there's a future sanctification when I leave this body and either just get caught up to be with him or I leave the body in the grave and I go on to heaven. Uh, That's future sanctification. But the continual sanctification, the present sanctification, is that process by which I learn his perspective of right and wrong and live what he expects of me. You remember Randy King, Brother Nelson. Uh, Randy, what a great guy. I've always loved Brother Randy King. And I remember when he would drop his kids off at our school when I pastored in Manchester, Tennessee. He'd always tell them when they got out of the car, remember, you're King's kids. Now, I don't know if that had an impact on them, but it had an impact on me. I thought, wow, that's really good. You're King's kids. Live like it. If you're saved, you're the king's kid. Live like it. That's sanctification. Learn what pleases him. Let me go over to this and we'll close. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, he has some great things to teach these people. But he gets, in verse 10, it says, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus being the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priesthood. But then he stops. It's, like, it's almost like he's looking at those that he's writing to and their eyes have glassed over. Every Sunday school teacher, every Bible college teacher, every Bible institute teacher has times when you look at the students and you're teaching this great truth and their eyes have glassed over, they're not getting any of it. They're there in body only. And it's like that right here. Notice what he says then after that. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And it becomes such as as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And now notice what he says to him. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Now who's he talking about? Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, you don't start out teaching your little six-month-old child, you don't start out teaching them English grammar. You don't start out teaching them math, algebra, geometry, calculus. What do you start out teaching them? No, 
No. Don't touch. No. No. Isn't it interesting how the first thing you start teaching them is don't. Why aren't you worried about their walking? Oh, that'll come. That's not for now. When that, as soon as they start moving around, man, you got to say no a lot. And it's funny. Once they start walking, you're really looking forward to that day when they take their first step. And now you've got to be on guard 24-7. Say, man, the next kid, we're not teaching them to walk till they're five. <laughs> because... I, because, you see, if they don't get the nose right, if they don't understand the boundaries, they won't even live to five. When they start walking and they're out there, they've got to know they can't go out into the street. When they're crawling around the house, they've got to know they can't put that finger in that light socket over there or that plug. If they don't, they won't live to five. You've got to teach. First thing you've got to teach them is boundaries. And guess what? In the Christian life, people have to learn boundaries. Right. Only thing in our society today, we hate boundaries. Even if they're God's boundaries, I want to be my own individual. Fine, but you're going to pay for it. Matter of fact, you're not even ready for the meat until you learn to discern both good and and evil. This isn't that hard. This is sanctification. It's really easy to understand. God says no for a reason about things. I trust him. I trust him with my soul. I can surely trust him with right and wrong. Why wouldn't I trust him with those things? So you've got people here in Acts chapter 15, 16, where we were at. They're new believers. They had been Gentiles. So they had had a whole system of false gods that had been taught to them, false practices. I mean, good night. You take the Christians at Corinth. They lived in a city where the, uh, they, they had religious prostitutes to a false god there in Corinth. To them, that was religion. They've got to learn a whole new set of things are different with God's people. And so it says that when these people had delivered to them the decrees for to keep, the churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. Those things aren't for our bondage. They're for our good. And I think part of the reason why a lot of Christians don't grow is because they won't get these first things. That God has boundaries. And his boundaries are right. They're for the good of his children. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. God, deal with our hearts. Didn't mean for this to be a hard message. And I hope it's not taken as a hard message. But simply things to help us understand. Yes, the simplicity that's there in salvation in sonship, in sanctification, in all these things, in service, the simplicity that's there. God, so deal with our hearts, I pray. If there's someone here that's not even saved, convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
that they turn to Jesus and be saved today. God, I pray for believers today where they've been cringing at the do's and the don'ts instead of seeing them for what they really are. God, I pray that they'd get a surrendered heart to you. Have your way in our lives. Grow us tonight, I pray, and establish us. In Jesus' name I ask.